Let us pray. Startle us, O God, with your truth, and open us to your love. And in this hour, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning I'm going to talk about some of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible and the deep and important challenges that we find within them. But first, a story. I know that it's kind of a cliche but uh, because I'm a pastor, but one of my favorite movies of all time is the 1959 epic film Ben-Hur, A Story of the Christ. It's based on the, the novel by the Civil War General Lew Wallace, and this story of Jesus' life is told from the perspective of another man, a man named Judah Ben-Hur, who is said to have lived in Jerusalem at that same time and whose life was shaped by a few random encounters with Jesus Christ. One of my favorite things about this film is the way that Jesus is shown on the screen. Each time that Ben-Hur meets Jesus, you don't see his face, nor do you hear his voice. Instead, you might see Jesus' hands, or you might see the back of his shoulders in the foreground, but the focus in the picture is always the effect he is having on someone else. You see the look on their faces, the depth of feeling in their eyes as he touches the deepest parts of their souls. You hear the inflection in their voices as they recall and repeat for someone else the words they heard Jesus say. And in this way, Ben-Hur comes to know Jesus in much the same way that you and I do. We watch as Jesus' gracious presence shapes the heart of hearts of other regular people, making their way through life. And by watching that effect, we decide what we will believe. One of Ben-Hur's indirect encounters with Jesus happens in the country on a hillside. There he hears the words of blessing that we heard in the gospel lesson this morning. These blessings are the opening lines of what we have come to know as the Sermon on the Mount. And many of us know these words by the Latin word for blessing. They are the Beatitudes. In the scene in the movie, you see regular people, weary and downtrodden, yet looking peaceful and relieved. You see them wandering out to this hillside, just a few at a time. They are people in need of comfort and reassurance. You see the yearning and the hope in their eyes, and you hear one of them stop along the way and recall to Ben-Hur the words that Jesus has said to them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The words come with comfort and reassurance and hope. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote about the importance of hearing the words of Jesus in a primitive way hearing them stripped of all the refinements that we often bring to a difficult text in order to avoid its meaning. That is to say that when it comes to words like the Beatitudes, these words may bring bring tremendous comfort and calming to our spirits, and they are intended to do just that. These are not another set of commandments for the hearer to worry about and to follow. They are blessings from God to be received and embraced. And yet the refinement of the words in a context like this movie, the idea of surrounding them with a beautiful countryside scene, calming movie studio background music, the longing and peace in the eyes of a great actor. These refinements may also blind us to the raw meaning of these blessings. These blessings are meant to comfort people who have been beaten down by the struggles of life in the world. And for those of us who are comfortable and secure, these blessings are meant to awaken and convict us about the struggles of other people. They are meant to remind us of the fact that God's blessing is first and foremost intended for those who suffer, for the poor, the meek, the merciful. God cares for the hungry. God cares for the neglected child and for the refugee. God cares for the addict and for the powerless. In these words, we are reminded of God's passion for them. The words of Jesus have a way of being beautiful and challenging all at the same time. Another way of saying this is that the gospel is intended both to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. 
The Old Testament reading for today does this as well. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. A minister friend of mine, Andrew Foster Connors, says that these words are perhaps the best bumper sticker length summary of the meaning of our faith. And yet we should never leave them with the thoughtlessness that we read a bumper sticker. We misunderstand these words if we fail to ask difficult and specific questions about what they mean. What does it mean to do justice? in the way that God intends. Is the life that I'm living one of loving kindness? These are questions that demand to be asked. And my friend Andrew remarks that in ancient Israel, these words were not a bumper sticker. They were spoken in response to a specific situation. Micah is talking about exploitative land and farming practices of the ruling elites. Roman rulers and priests up in the city in Jerusalem lived luxuriously off the backbreaking work of the rural farming poor. And this economic practice had become so commonplace that few people questioned it. And the prophet Micah says these words to remind people to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God because in the way they have been living there is no justice, there is no kindness, there is no walking humbly. The relevance of a message like this is here for modern folks wherever we go. There are so many ways in which we choose to live with things that seem so simple and easy around us, and we choose not to question what they really mean. It is so easy to live a comfortable life and to not wish to be troubled with the unintended consequences of what we do. We can't stand it when people challenge our comfort. Can I not enjoy this chicken sandwich without you telling me about the half a dozen birds forced to live and die in a crate the size of a doormat? Can I not enjoy my hamburger without having to think about its enormous carbon footprint? My property taxes are high enough, thank you. Please don't remind me that I'm contributing almost nothing to schools in the poorest zip codes in town. We hear or read about such things and we think, please stop. Stop reminding me of all my unintended exploitative practices because I've had a long day too. I have enough to do worrying about my parents' health and my job, trying to make ends meet and having something still to contribute to the church. In the midst of it all, I too am trying to eke out some meaning and purpose and perhaps even a little bit of pleasure along the way. I don't need these guilt-inducing reminders. What I need is for someone to come to me once in a while and say, Blessed are you who are pure in heart, for you will see God. The answer to this quandary, this 
tension between the comfort and the challenge of the words of Jesus? The answer is not to try to find your way out of the tension and ambiguity, but rather to embrace it. God gives us these words that contain both comfort and challenge and does so on purpose. We need both in our lives. God has created us with minds and hearts substantial enough to struggle. And it is in that struggle and not apart from it that we so often find God. Those of you who have been here recently may have figured out I'm reading a book by a theologian named Miroslav Volf. He was 41 years old when he told this story. It was a time when he was in need of a little break and he drove a few hours from home for a winter ski trip. He hit the slopes for a while, went to the spa afterwards, drank a beer in the lodge, and then he finally called his wife to let her know where to reach him the rest of the weekend. And the moment she picked up the phone, she told him that the adoption agency had called just a few hours ago, and after years of hoping, they were finally going to have a child. They'd been trying for years to get pregnant, and finally making peace with the idea that pregnancy was not in the cards, they went through the adoption process. The process was full of moral ambiguities and odd questions and judgments of character. What kind of a child were they willing to accept? How old? What race and what color? Would they take a risk on a mother who had been a drug user during pregnancy? It was strange to be asked to answer these questions and to make these judgments. All of the children in question, of course, needed a home and a parent. Who were they to make these judgments about a future child? And yet choices were being made about them too, the parents, and they wanted to be chosen. Would the birth mother want to give a child to them, a 41-year-old bald guy, an immigrant, a college professor without much money? These questions too seemed unfair, for they were willing to raise this child, so why all the judgment? Miroslav Volf writes that all of this moral ambiguity was swimming around in him as he arrived at the hospital to meet his child. And then I saw him, he writes, fine-featured little head with wide-open eyes protruding out of a little burrito wrap. And that very instant, I knew that I had received a most incredible gift. Its radiance shone brightly through all of the ambiguities of the adoption process, what seemed like the placement of an order. I do not want this, but we may be open to that. It was, in fact, experienced as a gift. And what felt like a demand to earn a right, you must do this and you must do that, was, in fact, experienced unequivocally as grace. Reflecting upon that experience, he wrote, Sometimes people... 
people ask me what theological insights I have learned as a father, this is one of them. Divine grace comes often to us through the ambiguities of life, not apart from them. The comfort and the challenge of Jesus are God's gifts to us. The words are meant to be beautiful, to show us that we are accepted by God just as we are, just as God made us. And they are meant to cut right to our hearts and convict us. God's words insist on showing us injustice and unkindness so that we will not forget, and in doing so they drive us to do better And through the comfort of the words, we are helped as we seek to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. For divine grace comes often to us through the ambiguities of life and not apart from them.